You don't sound autistic. Well, uh, what does an autistic person Wait. sound like? You're autistic? Yeah, I'm telling you that. You don't even look autistic. But, but we're talking about... Yeah, but, but I don't buy it. But I, I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD and anxiety and depression. You don't sound autistic. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Sound Autistic. I'm Blake. And I'm Rochelle. And I'm autistic. And I'm not. We like to remind everyone to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform so you can be notified of the newest episodes when they're released. Also, be sure to join the Facebook group. Join the group. Join the conversation. That's You Don't Sound Autistic YDSA on Facebook. We like to welcome listeners from all over the United States and all over the world. And everyone new to the Facebook group, we welcome you. Welcome. Uh, you can check out you don't sound autistic.com for old episode show notes and links to reference materials and episode posts. Check out the brain hugs or the shop to find the products we use to manage our daily lives. And is Rochelle ready? I am. All right. For our new listeners. You don't sound autistic is a mental and emotional health awareness podcast. Each week we do our best to represent both neuro perspectives and talk about the continual discovery process of life on the spectrum. Our goal is to illuminate, uncover, and transparently discuss life with multi-diagnosis through a multi-generational neurodivergent lens. We follow an open, unscripted, conversational format that represents the real life back and forth of communication and collaboration. Even if you aren't raising the next generation, you'll find the comparison of the age groups helpful in seeing the more hidden patterns in the DNA of your lifestyle and lineage. So speaking of our listeners and the Facebook group, uh, I did post on the Facebook group yesterday, I think, um, asking if any of our female listeners um, would be interested in coming on the show and chatting with us. So if you are interested, you can reach out to me on Facebook. It's Blake Fertig, F-E-R-T-I-G is my last name. Blake Fertig on Facebook. Just send me a message. Um you could also message Rochelle if you feel more comfortable talking to Rochelle. Um, so that'd be Rochelle, R-A-C-H-E-L-L-E, Fertig, F-E-R-T-I-G, on Facebook. So um, having said that, when people, and I've mentioned this before, but when people join the group, we ask a few questions about, uh, you know, how, how they found the show, um, how they, uh, let's see. Yeah, and in, in, in agreeing to the group rules and, and so forth. Um, and one of the questions is, what other topics are you interested in um, exploring and having us talk about? And this is from, um, oh shoot, their name is cut off. So, I'm sorry. I, it's just because I, I did a screen grab. But um, I'm just going to read this whole thing. Everything you're, you, uh, you're currently been going through, I'm currently looking at getting diagnosed and had no clue until a couple of months ago and now going through some imposter syndrome pre-diagnosis or some of the more subtle signs and symptoms that we don't routinely think about with the diagnosis issues about interception, etc. I'd love to hear about some other experiences as well. Also love you guys. You're lovely and hilarious. Keep it up. I love, I'm loving listening to you to and from work every day at the moment. So yay. Yay. A, a happy listener. I love that. So um, we don't always do this, but just this one's a newer, uh, a newer person that joined the group. And again, sorry, I don't know who wrote that, but I'm sure that you're probably like, oh my gosh, they're talking about me right now. Um, 
But the the concept of imposter syndrome, I don't know if we've really covered that much. Not much, no. If if at all on the show. So <clears throat> quickly found a, a Google search. I was trying to figure out the best way to express what autistic imposter syndrome is. And there's a post from authenticallyemily.uk. Um, and it says, basically believing that you are a fraud. For the huge amount of autistic people who experience imposter syndrome, this boils down to questions such as these. Am I faking being autistic? Is my diagnosis wrong? Am I pretending to be autistic? So there can be a lot more that goes into it than just those questions. But I think anyone that is diagnosed or listening, um, sorry, that's been, that's listening, that's been diagnosed or someone that is seeking a diagnosis or feels, you know, they're listening because they relate to a lot of what we talk about. Um, I think that it's an important topic to cover because it is something that from my just doing some some reading and things that I've learned in my other face you know in other groups that I'm part of on Facebook that it is a real thing that people face um I guess imposter syndrome in general is something that was coined back in the 70s and I don't remember the the doctor that coined the term or the phrase but um in general the idea is feeling like you are um, a fraud, like it said, thinking that you're a fraud. So it can be related to your successes at work. It can be related to, um, in this specific instance, whether or not you are in fact autistic. And uh, what what I was looking at online basically said that if you are feeling that you're you feel like you're autistic but you feel like you know you've you've masked and maybe you're not 100% sure if the diagnosis feels right um is is Rochelle are you I'm following it all I think oh, okay. I think the more I I mean you mentioned this this morning and I've I've come across imposter syndrome several times in my career not necessarily in my personal life um, medically. So I'm looking through my vantage points to relate back to this conversation. And Well, here's the thing. So look at me talking. Um, I, I wasn't, when I first heard about imposter syndrome, I, I wasn't exactly sure how I felt about it. But then, you know, after being, di- after being diagnosed... I I think a lot of people go through this um, and maybe they it, it could be a, a co-occurring theme that kind of just keeps popping up because we do mask so well. This is my understanding of it, that we that a lot of us can mask very well and fit in and, you know, seem to kind of go through the process, go through the motions almost of, you know, living our lives day to day. But then you, you're like, well, am I, am I really autistic then? And I think the thing is to remember is what autism is. And as far as a diagnosis and what it means for you as an autistic individual. And the biggest takeaways would be, you know, communication and social abilities um, are, are, are huge parts of... That was loud. Yep. Sorry. Are huge parts of autism. 
And so how I noticed it, like, because I, I myself have gone through that where, uh, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And I'm like, do I really have ADHD? Like the medication doesn't seem like it's really working. And then I have to think, okay, I take the medication. If I were neurotypical and not someone that was, uh, that had, you know, uh, ADHD, the medication would affect me in a much different way. Maybe it's not the best medication for me, but I'm not experiencing the feeling that someone like Rochelle, if she were to take an ADHD medication would, would experience. And the same can be true with autism. You know, I'll, I'll be going through work and, you know, like the other day, um, my assistant manager praised me and, and said that I should go ahead and apply to be a team leader in, in, in the company. And so, you know, that felt really good to, uh, to be recognized and, to, you know, for her to say like, Hey, you know, you, you're doing a great job. You should be, you know, you should be, uh, what can they think this morning? You you should you know be moving up, if, especially if that's something that you're interested in. So I did express my interest in that and went through the process of doing that. And I'm not used to being the one that's talking. It's really weird to hear myself talk um, on this uh, on the podcast anyway. So going through, you know, then I'll be at work and I'm like, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing a good job. You know, you know, am I, am I really autistic? But then I, you know, hearken back to the issues that I had with the, the employee that, you know, has been grabbed, you know, grabbed my arm and touching my back and stuff like that, you know, like patting me on the back. And I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely autistic <laughs> when it comes to that stuff. It makes me so uncomfortable and to a degree that it, no one else really can relate to that, you know, the neurotypical people that I work with. I think that they can express a level of um, empathy mm-hmm. with that. But they're, you know, like, for instance, um, one of the other employees, she was standing and she's aware that I have issues with this other employee, the the gentleman that I've talked about. Look at me calling him a gentleman. I'm so nice. And, um, you know, he, he, the same person that's like grabbed my arm and, and touched my back and stuff. And she said something about being cold or something like that. I'm, um, I'm paraphrasing. And then he put his, the back of his hand, the back of his fingers against her face as if to, you know, like you would do to a child to feel their forehead and to her cheek and, and touched and he touched her face and was this yesterday? I think it was yesterday. After okay. After my understanding was that I did have I did speak to my assistant manager and say like, hey, you know, this is making me uncomfortable, and she's like, I'll talk to him. So I think she talked to him, but obviously he didn't listen because one of the other employees was standing next to him, um, and a, a male employee, and he like touched the small of his back. Okay to when a customer came by to kind of like move him out of the way and he did it again uh i think it was yesterday and then he touched the the uh the young lady the young lady who i work with touched her on the face and then i asked her afterward uh i was like what was that i was like what was that about and she's like yeah you know like that kind of stuff i just kind of like let it roll off my back you know i don't necessarily want to make a big deal about it kind of thing right I, on the other hand, is like, if he touched my, like, I was expecting when he touched her face, I was like, I was like, oh my God, she's going to give it to him. She's going to give him the business. And she just kind of said like, oh, you know, no big deal kind of thing. Right. She didn't, I don't know if it really bothered her, but she definitely didn't make it seem in my presence and with him right there, she didn't say anything like, hey, that was inappropriate. Right. Um, And so to me, I'm just like, should, that's where I notice 
that I like even seeing that interaction with them made me very uncomfortable. Was it because she let it roll off her back or just no, 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 it was no, just that he that he would think that that was okay behavior at work. Yeah, but okay, but we've and okay. So when you talked to your manager after our last podcast, after the last episode, she said she would address the issue, but she would do it generally. That's my understanding. Right. Kind of like a, hey, everyone, just make sure we're not touching each other. You know, like, just keep your hands to yourself. Something really broad. That's risky by not being direct to the person. See, when managers do that passive thing and they just generally make a statement... They're assuming that everyone's going to listen and then do their own self-analysis like, oh, that applies to me. She's talking to me. I need to course correct and do what she's saying. But that's a huge risk because now you're putting the onus of the evaluation on the individual person listening. And A, there's no guarantee they listened. And B, there's no guarantee they thought it applied to them. And if if she's addressing... um, the concept of like, hey, keep your hands to yourself. He's probably so used to socially interacting with like mindless physical touch, you know, that's that's harmless in his mind because that's how he was raised. It's part of that 95% of his brain that he doesn't think about that's totally habitual, that isn't intentional, that he's not connecting the dots. And so that general thing usually doesn't work. So... You know, I I think that's. I don't know if if she was even if she was more specific, if he would have caught on. No, she'd have to specifically say to him, "Hey, stop touching people while you like." That's what I'm saying. I think even if I at this point, I think even if she addressed it directly like that, she'd have to do it several times directly. The reason that she didn't do it the way that you're describing that should be done, or you know, not should. I guess you're not supposed to say should. Um, that would be best. Uh, is because she was trying to, I think she was trying to prevent me from being the, you know, from it being obvious that I said something. But now, I mean, it's just become a theme with other people as well. And so really it's just going to come down to how they want to handle it as an HR because it's going to continue to become a growing problem and it's going to affect more and more people. So, you know, it does. I don't know if it's really bothering anyone as much as it bothers me. I'm sure that's true. I mean, and everyone might brush it off except for you. But at the end of the day, you know, some of these things, some of these decisions are made based on HR policy. And then it's just frustrating for you because you want it to stop. And I think anytime you see that you see him continue to do this it's gonna communicate to you that he's not stopping which means that you're not safe around him because he's not understanding and he could continually make you feel unsafe because you don't you have to stay on guard that he's going to continue the practice yeah i i just at this point like if it was me that he had touched my face to be to check my temperature so to speak then I would, I think in my, in my brain, in my heart of hearts, I feel like I'm like, I should, I feel like I should, would be able to say something, be yeah. like, Hey, whoa, don't touch me. Yeah. You're like, you're not my dad, you know? Yeah. We're not, 
We're not on that level. Right. But so, it, that's but anyway, so going back to the imposter syndrome, that is for me just one instance that illustrates, you know, an obvious gap between the neurotypical and and myself where you know, this is happening to other people and they're kind of like, mm, I don't let it bother me. Now, are they really bothered by it and they're just neurotypical and they not they're not saying how much it bothers them or is it just that it really bothers me that much more i don't know because i know neurotypicals that absolutely can't stand that either so okay i but when i so imposter syndrome is incredibly real but i think it's a fancy name for lack of confidence because when you really boil down what imposter syndrome means it means you're in a position of some sort or state that you don't feel confident in because if you felt confident in it, you'd be able to own it. And there's really only two states of being, um, you know, of, of, of any state of awareness, right? You either own it or you're pretending to own it. It's that whole fake it till you make it kind of thing. And, and that's because a lot of times when you're first developing skills or developing awareness or identifying with a new characteristic or part of yourself, whether that's, you know, something that you're learning to do or, or self-awareness of who you are, there's still the same neurological processes that we go through where in the learning state, we're really only learning with 5% of 5 to 10% of our brain because all the rest of the brain has been fired and wired into habit so what we're saying is we it's easy to feel like you're in imposter syndrome while you're in that five to ten percent of your brain learning a something new about yourself whether like I said whether you're developing a skill you're learning a new language you're learning that you're autistic there's an entire language of being autistic like being able to identify how you feel and why you feel that way what your challenges are and why you have those challenges, what you're going to do about it, like how are you going to shape your life? Like all of that is new. Anything that's new for the brain, you don't have neuropathways for. You literally don't have the synapses triggered and fired yet to build the neural network. So you have to live in that state long enough for your brain to catch up and support you and build those neural networks and go like okay we're comfortable in this now like we've practiced talking about it we've practiced thinking about it we've been in enough situations to where I understand how this component happened and that component and this is real for me like this is really what I'm feeling and on top of it we know that with neurodivergence and in whether it's autism or ADHD or anxiety and depression all you know all these different things um there's varying levels of your ability to feel your own body. Some people overfeel their body. Some people underfeel their body. When you're either over or underfeeling your body, that's where your emotions are. And so you need your emotions to come up into the thought realm and connect so that you can build a confidence loop. And when there's delays in either one of those processes that delays the confidence that comes in, you can get stuck in imposter syndrome. One of the things I wanted to say, I'm so glad I was able to hold on to this thought through that, (laughs) Um, is, you know, going through the different, you know, I'm assuming everyone has their own process of 
discovering that they're autistic, be it someone like for me, someone was like, has anyone ever told you you're autistic? And that like might as well have been a penis growing out of their forehead. Just like, huh? Uh, no, of course not. Autistic people are autistic. I'm not autistic. Am I? That's kind of like how it, I mean, it, it feels. Um, but oh, shit, I'm, I'm losing the thought. I had it. Uh, going through like, you know, some people on these, uh, sites, you know, not sites, but some people on these Facebook groups will say, is this, is this autism? And they'll describe something about themselves. And, you know, some people will say yes or no or whatever, but a lot of times people chime in and they'll say, oh my gosh, I do the same thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it does relate to autism. So I think it just perpetuates, um, in some of these groups, uh, it might perpetuate that feeling of imposter syndrome when someone sees something like that and they might go, oh, I don't identify with that. That does. And, but the thing is you don't have to necessarily identify with every single aspect of the concept of autism in order to be an autistic individual. Just like you don't have to necessarily, when you fill out one of those forms for, um, when you're trying to see if you're, if you have, if you have ADHD, for instance, right. You're not necessarily going to tick every box in the extreme. Right. Cause it, in it, it is a spectrum as well when it comes to ADHD, just like it's a spectrum when it comes to autism. Some people are going to experience it more, um, negatively or pos you know, not positively necessarily, but I guess they could, um, because you have special interests and stuff like that. So it might be something where you, you start focusing on something that is beneficial. Like if you're really successful in business or something, because you're obsessed with business, you know what I'm saying? I do. So, yeah, I think the, the, the idea of, I think more than anything, um, when it comes to the community of autistic people that coming together and discussing like what we're doing right now mm-hmm. is very important because you you may find that there are things that are uh, individual traits that aren't necessarily linked to autism and you might find things that are linked to autism. But again, going back to, you know, the key ideas of, you know, social and, and communication issues, which that's what I, and those aren't the only, you know, those aren't the only points, but those are, you know, you would agree two key I do. points. Um, and so that's what I always hearken back to. If I do feel like I am experiencing imposter syndrome or if, you know, if I'm ever like, am I really autistic? Then something will happen. And I'm like, yep, I certainly am. Cause I just feel like I, it, it'll kick into gear and I'll notice that I am, I'm like, I am not like the rest of you. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm even seeing um, TikToks come out now that are really poignant. And the wording was difficult for me to wrap my head around. But it was like, oh, this neurotypical versus a normal person. And um, the phrase neurotypical spectrum disorder was thrown around. And I was like, what the heck is that? And I don't know that I agree with the terminology because the terminology is challenging. But this idea that there's only neurotypical and neurodivergent um, was being tested by the example of, you know, how passive and indirect communication can be. 
regardless. And so you'll see, you'll see, and I've, I've got family members that will do this, but you'll see someone that will be like, oh, hey, are you hungry? You know, I'll ask you a question. Hey, are you hungry? Okay. And then how, you know, you, you're going to answer my question, right? I'm hungry. And tell me no. No. Oh, and then I get offended. And I get offended because my question, you were supposed to understand that when I asked you if you were hungry, it what I was really asking you, what I was really saying is, oh, I'm hungry. Do you want to go get lunch with me? Now, those aren't the words I said to you. It's typical neurotypical. <laughs> but is it neurotypical? Because that is not, that's not typical communication either. It's not. It's, it's very trauma-based, passive-aggressive. Um, not even aggressive. It's just, it's super passive. Like it's, it's fear ridden. Uh, it's big time mask. Like, oh, and then the person, when you told me, no, you're not hungry. Cause you answered the question I asked, not the question I couldn't ask. Then, you know, I get offended because now I, I view it as you don't want to go to lunch with me, which this has happened in my family. Like I was, I could eat. I was raised with this type of communication, this toe tipping eggshell walking, backwards type of communication that you constantly had to decode now some people would say that's neurotypical I strongly believe it's actually neurodivergent and I know the the family member family members I'm referring to and they were later discovered to be neurodivergent but we didn't know that 30 40 years ago when the behavior was first introduced in the family and then perpetuated through the lineage right and so you're like okay is that person pretending to be a neurotypical because they didn't know any different? Yeah, because they think they're normal. I thought you were asking me a question. I didn't realize it was uh, rhetorical. That one was rhetorical. Um, but so this, I, this, I, I'm, the deeper I dive into all of this and the more I work through some of this, I think it's good to have definitions, but we need to be, open-minded enough to understand that those definitions can be loose because it's a spectrum for a reason and there's varying degrees of how every single brain is going to process with autism or ADHD. you don't know they're co-occurring do they have anxiety do they have depression do they have OCD do they have oppositional defiance disorder do they have hyper empathy do they have the opposite do they have empathy deficit like there's so many combinations that overlap in this world you start adding in dyslexia which is common the dyscalculia the dysgraphia you know you're learning things and now what you're really talking about is an overall brain that isn't integrated when we talk about ADHD ADHD is the inability to know things and use that information at the same time so you have massive integration challenges inside the brain. And at the same time, you're trying to compute what buying lunch for the day or making it to work on time or managing the social situation in the middle of the your work environment, which, by the way, is public. You know, like you don't get to hide behind an office where a lot of people do and have all their social interactions basically private. Like you don't. You're having all these work social interactions in public which has to add a dimension of difficulty to your evaluation process because you know in any given moment you could be watched. It would, it would freak me out. Like I know when I've worked in public. Well, you're making me uncomfortable. I'm just, I'm just thinking about all the different aspects of it. Um, and I think this is a great topic. I'm glad you brought it forward because it, it is complex. 
it requires a fair amount of open-mindedness in our community to understand that, you know, I think it's, I think it's sad if, um, you, if someone were to come and go, Oh, I think this is my autism and someone else tells them no, like who has the right to tell another person what it is or isn't based on their understanding of a definition when in fact the DSM five itself is very clear in the fact that the diagnostic criteria Sorry, we have him. We have an unruly cat. Persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction across multiple contexts as manifest by the following currently or by history. Um, and these are just illustrative examples, but not an exhaustive list. Deficits in social emotional reciprocity ranging, for example, from abnormal social approach and failure of normal back and forth conversation to reduced sharing of interests, emotions, or affect, to failure to initiate or respond to social interactions at all. Could also reflect as deficits in nonverbal communicative behaviors, um, deficits in developing, maintaining, or understanding relationships. Uh, that's, the, that's diagnostic criteria A. So those are broad terms. How that relates to an individual specifically you know, I think that's up to the individual to decide. Yeah, but I mean, what I'm saying is more like when someone's on a Facebook group and they're like, I have diarrhea. Does everyone else have diarrhea? It's like, sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I that's what I'm saying. Like, where someone will say something like that and you're like, okay, I don't it, it, It's not necessarily something that is like everyone's going to identify with at that moment. But, but that's an agreed, but that's where I think our ability to respond to those types of situations would be more like, I think it's kind of like, well, maybe that is for you. Maybe that is for you because we, we know, cause we study the brain on this podcast, right? We know that digestive and sleep issues are the number one and two things that go sideways when you're in a fight or flight response. And so that's diarrhea is very <laughs> directly linked to living in chronic fight or flight, which autism often does uh, it, it, for every individual. It makes it forces you to, so does ADHD, forces you to live in chronic fight or flight. So is your digestion off? Probably. Yeah. Is your sleep off? Probably. Yeah. Is it connected to your autism? Probably. Yeah. Is it autism? Not by definition, but you see where my, that's where I get that's where I get hung up on people who throw definitions at me and I actually get really upset about it because if you're going to compartmentalize any part of life to that degree to throw a definition around and be entrapped by it, then you're not seeing the bigger picture. And, and then I worry and I have clients that do this constantly like, oh, well, I have this. So so here's my limitations. I'm like, well, if you're going to argue for your limitations, they're yours to keep. I agree with the fact that we're working through challenges, but challenges by nature, you know, means that there's, there's different little things that you can do. You can't take autism away necessarily, but you can reduce the severity of what you're experiencing based on how you respond to those moments. Right now we're talking about imposter syndrome and not knowing if what you're feeling is legit and I and you mentioned before, right? Imposter syndrome can happen before and after a diagnosis. Yeah, because people people will not necessarily be diagnosed, or maybe they're not seeking a diagnosis, 
and then but if they've come to a realization like oh i i'm pretty sure i'm autistic or identify as being autistic i feel like i'm autistic right but then they haven't been diagnosed so or they didn't get the correct like we've had some people who very strongly identify as autistic and their their diagnostic process failed them and didn't include them in autism well and it's possible that people can you know go under the radar and not be diagnosed as autistic and still be autistic because they didn't meet someone, you know, as far as their medical professionals, they failed them because they didn't necessarily have the right, uh, the right criteria or they didn't have the, uh, the medical understanding or the wherewithal to make a connection that to someone that, studies and understands autism would be able to identify far more easily. Right. So there's a lot of components to diagnostics. And I, and I think that's another challenge is they're like, Oh, I'm diagnosed. So it's official. And if I'm not diagnosed, then it's not official and I can't really claim it. And I think that's a struggle also. Um, Going back to diarrhea. Hold on. Hold, hold on. on. No, I have a point. Okay. I have a point. Um, you know, maybe not diarrhea, but if if you have, um, I don't want to relate it to something like bad, like uh, a, an illness or something necessarily, but, you know, let's say that you could diagnose a cold, right? Okay. If you don't go see a doctor, your nose is still fucking runny and you still have a scratchy throat, you have a cold. Right. You know, so just because you don't necessarily have a doctor telling you, yes, you have a cold, if you have the symptoms, then chances are that's what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's that's what it is, is that people that are undiagnosed will, you know, in that same sense, they have the runny nose, they have the scratchy throat, they're sneezing, their eyes are watery. They're achy. They're not sleeping well, or whatever. And they're not, you know, as far as uh, as far as it relates to a cold, right? Um, as a metaphor, anyway. Um, is it a metaphor? Anyway. Uh, well, I'm gonna read this from. Oh boy. This is from one of the books that I'm reading right now, and um, it's a it's a little bit lengthy. Should I go get a snack? <laughs> but it's important because. Um, well, make sure that you're referencing who you're reading. So hang on, this is from a Dr. Robert Melillo, and he's talking about um, diagnostic criteria under the DSM-5. So he says, there's no consi- which we know, there's no consistent anatomical or physical markers for neurodivergent conditions, um, autism, ADHD, dyslexia, OCD, and a whole roster of childhood neurological disorders. Any A diagnosis of any disorder is purely subjective based on your answers to a series of questions that relate to your to yours or your child's symptoms and the way your answers are interpreted nothing is concrete except the questions themselves which come right out of the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders the dsm-5 which first came out in 1952 and went through a major revision in 1992 and another one in 2013 that's what i just read out of i i own a dsm-5 Don't make fun of me. The DSM-5, as it's now called, is universally used by professionals to diagnose and classify 
mental disorders. This is the first major revision in 20 years and it's getting its share of controversy, mostly as a result of the way it does and doesn't quote unquote label these conditions. It eliminates three subgroups that previously came under the broad definition of autism spectrum disorder, ASD, autism, Asperger syndrome, and pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified as PDD NOS. Um, da, 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 da. Also controversial is the now more limited range of criteria for diagnosis which one study found will leave thousands of developmentally delayed children each year without the diagnosis they need to qualify for social services, educational support, and medical benefits. A 2014 study conducted by a team of researchers from Columbia University School of Nursing estimates that the DSM-5 guidelines will dismiss 31% of children who would have been diagnosed with ASD under the old manual. We're potentially going to lose diagnosis and treatment for some of the most vulnerable kids who have developmental delays, said one of the study authors. So is that saying that they're not autistic enough to be diagnosed, if that's a thing? 31% of them will fail to meet the criteria and still be autistic. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. 31%. And that's children today where autism is incredibly more prevalent. I mean, we're down to like one in every 42 children has has autism and the book makes reference to how many adults are missed within that criteria of the, within the same time because this change was made in 2013 and most adults didn't start reaching out for their diagnostic evaluations until 2019 2020 so i i would i haven't seen a number on how much they estimate we're missing in terms of adults for diagnostic um, validity. So when we then pin, you have to have a diagnosis in order to be valid or to be confident in what you're experiencing with that kind of data gap. I go back to, you know, we need to have loose definitions around these things for ourselves and not pin so much on the label and more just about being confident in what you're experiencing and knowing that it's okay that you're experiencing it. You can work from that. I had something to say and I lost it. I know. I feel that way sometimes when you talk to. Great. It's just part of conversation. Talking about me. <laughs> so I mean, it's a val it's a very, very valid topic because there's, there's just no net that's going to catch everything. But how you feel and what you feel like you're struggling with is always valid. Always valid. And the person it should be the most valid to is yourself. Because you're honestly the only person who can help yourself feel better also. Like if you need to, to talk to someone or tweak something or change something. or um, And when I say change something, I mean like maybe... Maybe you're struggling with, I don't know. Diarrhea? Yeah, maybe it's diarrhea and you just need to change something that you're eating. I don't want you to change who you are. That's not why I'm using the word change. But I mean like, you know, mo modify your environment. We've had people say, well, I've changed the lights and that helped me feel better. Or I started taking a methylated B complex and that helped me feel better. Like there's there's tools and resources for you to use. That's what I'm saying. Okay. 
Take some Imodium. <laughs> and that wasn't the only diagnostic criteria. I only read A. There's, there's, uh, and I'm not going to read the whole page because it's quite lengthy. But um, thank th- you for that. Yeah, the second diagnostic criteria is restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities as manifested by at least two of the following: stereotyped or re- repetitive motor movements. Um, that can be the use of objects or speech. Uh, like lining up toys or flipping objects, um, idiosyncratic phrases, insistence on sameness, like inflexible to adherence or routine, adherence to routines or ritualized patterns of verbal or nonverbal behavior, highly restricted or fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus, um, hyper or hypo activity to sensory input or unusual interest in sensory aspects of the environment. Um, The third criteria, symptoms must be present in early developmental period, but may not become fully manifested until social demands exceed limited capacities or be masked by learned strategies in later life. And D, symptoms cause clinically significant impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of current functioning. And the last one is disturbances are not better explained by an intellectual disability, intellectual developmental disorder, or global developmental delay. So that's a mouthful. I mean, that's a lot to kind of work through. So. Yeah. What did you say again? (laughs) We boil it down really easily to like social, emotional, socio-emotional reciprocity issues but it's it's actually far more complex than that. And so I wanted to read the actual definition out of the DSM-5 just to show and illustrate like the real range. Right. No, I, I appreciate that. I think I wasn't trying to, I, was, I wasn't trying to dumb it down necessarily. I, I was don't just think trying you are. to simplify it. Just no. for the sake of conversation. For I the mean, podcast. let's be honest. When you first brought it up, I I know f- imposter syndrome um, from, like I said, my career. And actually, when I started my my program, my school, they they said in one of the first classes, they're like, OK, now you're going to feel like an imposter as a data scientist. And I was like, well, yeah, because you numb schools haven't taught me anything yet. But then when I went to my mentor and I was like, I don't feel like I'm like learning what are you guys trying to teach me they're like, oh remember the imposter syndrome thing and i was like i'm on week four <laughs> like you fools haven't taught me anything yet but what it came down to was a lack of confidence and and even even three weeks ago i had that same conversation with my class instructor and and i'm now months into the course and i still don't feel like i can work with and critically think through situations and recall my tools and solve data problems. Like I know what I want to do and how I want to do it. And when they, they like, okay, now do this. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. Like I'm still. And so I, I said to the instructor, I'm really struggling with the way some of these courses are written. Um, and I don't feel like I'm learning. And what she said back to me was, I actually think you know more than you think you do. Because it's it's not uncommon for students to feel this way, even at this point in the course. But that's why we've designed the final project. Because as you start to pull it all together for your final project, you'll realize you know more than you think you do. Okay. I was like, oh, right. Okay. 
but there's no final project in the world of diagnostic evaluation and neurodivergence and self-awareness. Like what's your final project? If you put that final project on the evaluation, you're still putting your, I guess you're, how do you say it? Like you're still waiting for the evaluator to come back and say yes or no that you are ADHD or you do have autism or whatever and yet we already know that there's gaps in the DSM-5 there as well so where does your confidence come from where does your confidence come from that you know who you are and why you are you're asking me yeah I wasn't sure if that was rhetorical or or not no I don't I'm not how do I know who I am right I I don't know so you you mentioned earlier like still struggling with that Oh, well, that's fair because you said earlier you gave an example of like, am I, autis- am I autistic? And then you go, oh, yeah, I definitely am. <laughs> so is this something you're constantly reevaluating even now? I think to a degree because I go through, I think it just comes in waves, you know, just depending on how I'm doing. I don't know. And, and, and there's layers to it on top of uh, being autistic the ADHD part of it, the anxiety part of it, the depression part of it, like all that stuff just kind of, it commingles it, it and coexists in my brain, and my body and my being in general. <laughs> sure. So to not necessarily know in, in any given moment how I'm feeling and then to have the wherewithal to say like, oh, this is uh, an autistic trait or this is, this is depression because they can kind of, they can overlap. So, definitions help i'm not trying to be critical no, I know. I'm, they uh, help uh, me sometimes to know okay i'm experiencing this so if i'm experiencing this then i know to do this for myself right so it's helpful to have ideas and 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 feel that part of like self-awareness like yes this is what i'm experiencing and why and this is what i can do about it is that how it works for you too like when you're running through things and you're trying to figure out the moment does it help for you to pull back and go, oh, that's okay. That's my anxiety talking. It's usually after the moment where I can reflect. Okay. It's just like when you're having a conversation with someone and then like later that day or the next morning or whenever it is, six months from then, and you're like, damn, I should have said this. <laughs> I, st- I, I struggle with that feeling a lot. Yeah. I mean, when I listened back, to, I listened to the last episode 66 and driving around in my car, um, you know, on the way to work and, and, running errands and so forth and there's times when you're talking and then I'm like and then I'll say something and I, and I hear myself go you know on the podcast I'll, I'll, I'll go yeah and I'm like damn it Blake you should have said this <laughs> well sometimes it's difficult to remember all that in the moment that's yeah. what I'm saying in the moment I have a really hard time which makes for very exciting radio <laughs> when I just go uh-huh yeah, yep. but isn't yeah. that true life though? I mean, like none of us are fully what it, it happens. It happens does in the podcast. Like we'll both be thinking of different things. Like you'll trigger thoughts for me, and then keep talking, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to remember that when he stops. And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. But the difference is, I've come, and I'm not comparing us. It's just I've come to the point where, because that's happened to me so often in my life, where I've struggled to remember something, and then it's gone. Especially after having having a baby I've never quite gotten that part of my brain back 
um, I've now to the point where I've just developed a level of trust that goes, well, if I really needed that piece of the conversation, it'll come back to me, you know? And if I didn't really need that thought, then it's gone and it's gone forever. But I disagree with that. I think I've lost plenty of really good thoughts. Plenty of things that I never said that were probably the funniest things anyone ever would have heard. <laughs> okay. Well, that's fair. But then I forgot the same because you were talking. <laughs> same. I, ditto. I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, well, so what advice do you have for people who may be experiencing imposter syndrome? And we'll divide it up into phases to make it easier for you to answer. So like if someone's pre-diagnosis or pre, like they're in the self that, that, um, that phase where you're wondering, is this me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then what advice would you have for uh, it, not? And if you could break it down, cause you're both. So we'll do the first one for as an adult, if you're an adult and you believe that you may have a neurodivergent condition and you're researching it right now and you're looking for that piece that goes, yes, that fits me. How would you help people with imposter syndrome? Yeah. Imposter syndrome. I mean, my first thought would be to ask yourself if you want to go down the path of diagnosis. Right. And what that means and, you know, the costs associated with that. And that's the thing that's so unfortunate, you know, that you should even have to question something like that because of your financial situation. And that's true in the U.S., not necessarily in other countries, but definitely true in the U.S., but, uh, you know, do, do you seek a diagnosis? Will that, do you think a diagnosis and the, the, um, confirmation? Yeah. The comfort, you know, like, uh, having it confirmed would, would be helpful for you. Um, but I also think that if you don't necessarily feel that that's the route you want to go or that you need to do that, then I think just trying to continue learning about what autism is and how it relates to sorry uh, to keep researching autism you know listen to our podcast and uh, you know there's other podcasts out there i know um you know reading books mm-hmm. watching ted talks uh, videos and and all that stuff you know just cuz i feel like it's like Rochelle was saying earlier if 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 you you know if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck it's a duck right and you don't necessarily require someone else's validation you don't necessarily have to be diagnosed right um in order to be autistic that's what i was saying about you know like if you're sick you don't need to see a doctor in order for them to tell you like you know that you're sick you know that you have a cold right you know um if now if it's really severe and you need medication like that's where i think if you're in that place where you're like, I really need support. Well, with like ADHD, I, ADHD can be can be helped chemically. It can. Did uh, you know there's a national shortage of Adderall? Yes. Yeah, of course you would know. But I but I don't take Adderall, so it doesn't affect me. I know, but there's many, many, many. I did before though. Right. So there's you know depending on what you need in order to help yourself. I don't know. I forgot where I was going with that. I got distracted. Uh, me too. <laughs> National shortage of Adderall. Yeah. Reaching out for well, just because. Uh, all I was it, all I was saying. For support. Yeah, I was saying. just saying. You know, with with 
there are things that you know for ADHD there's there's several medications that you can try that may alleviate some of the symptoms and and help you kind of get through quiet your brain a little bit um I almost feel like my brain's a little too quiet these days right I think my mouth on the other hand just keeps running (laughs) <laughs> there's also a lot of natural things i mean like the the not everything has to be prescription there with the world of research into natural things and ways to help your brain balance from adhd and anxiety and depression um is improving try, i've tried a lot of that stuff through you and i feel like the medication definitely makes a bigger difference i didn't have the resources then that i have now nothing i gave you before was specific for ADHD because I didn't know you had it okay. to be honest. I mean, like I, I didn't know what I was trying to help you with before. I was just trying to help you with overall stress because we didn't know you had ADHD or anxiety or well, depression like, or autism. Well, but stress in general, it, you know, the certain medications that I've had or that I, that I take now um, help a lot more with, uh, you know, mitigating stress and, being able to, you know, in, in anxiety and depression. And that may but all be... The, but some of the, again, that stuff comes in waves. So it's like there's just certain days when depression just hits me hard. And if you were to say like, why, you know, describe your depression. You, well, that's And it's impossible. really hard to do. Right. Well, and like you said, though, things do come in waves because there's, there's other things. Like we live on a cyclical planet with <laughs> cyclical changes and... You know, our bodies respond differently to our environment. That includes the gravitational pull of the moon. Laugh at me if you will, but we're 90% water. I will. Um, we live on, you know, there's four different seasons too, if you live in Florida. But, um, you know, there's there's all these other outside factors. It could be raining for three days in a row and that could affect your mood. You might not have contracted your muscles anytime soon. So you don't have that influx of hope molecules running through your body. You know, if you're not, there's just so many different factors. It can't just be bubbled down into one thing. So, you know, we're a holistic being in a holistic environment. And it's overwhelming to think about all the different components to it. And it's just, you can't all at once. So help me through what would you tell someone on the other side of a diagnosis with imposter syndrome? Now you've received a diagnosis. Right. Well, I mean, I think for me, it it goes back to what I said before, and I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, but if, I guess, think, think about what, like, why do you feel like an imposter um, would be important. Or like which situations specific? There might be a pattern in the. I think situations. a lot of it has to do. I mean, for my, for me anyway, a lot of it has to do with the masking because you're you're dis- you're disguising yourself as what you interpret in a, neuro- a neurotypical person to be based on your experiences with the outside world. That's fair, right? Or when you don't like the responses you got for being yourself. Well, I mean, that's why, like, I don't even know if I 100% know who, like, who I, who I truly, truly am because I have masked my entire life to try and, you know, and not on purpose. That's what people do. People, you know, you, you're raised and you, you mimic your, your parents, you mimic your classmates, and then you, you know, you develop your own personality and your own way of being. But a lot of that stems from how 
you relate to and how you interact with others. Well, right? I, like if you were if you were raised in a vacuum, you or you know if you were raised by wolves or something like you know like you're gonna yeah be, you're gonna take that culture you, so you it's nature versus nurture. There's a whole thing to that, and I don't want to get into that necessarily, but. As far as answering the question, you know, what would I, what would I say? Because I'm, that's me. Right. I am, you know, I have been officially diagnosed, and took me a while to accept that. And then you go with, you, you, you. Okay, so I've accepted it, but am I really autistic? Yeah, because your initial definitions played a role in here when you were first given the diagnosis officially. I mean, unofficially, you were struggling with this too, but your official diagnosis clashed very sharply with what your previous understanding of autism was. And so before you could accept it, you had to own what you really thought it was before and then reconcile what autism really is versus your misconceptions. I think what it comes down to is the you have to accept that there is a spectrum. Right. So... Um, my experience with someone that was autistic is like my cousin, one of my cousins who, and and, and I get so frustrated because now you're, you're not supposed to say like someone's severely autistic or someone's, you know, like what more autistic. Well, no, but I'm sorry, but you, the DSM five, I wasn't done. Don't says me, that I, you I don't can't. Lose, I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose my thought. here. I hear you, but, but my, my cousin and my uncle right. are both autistic. Right. And if, you know, if there's a spectrum, that means, is the spectrum a big circle? No, it's based on severity levels. So, so, but they, but that's what I'm, my, my point is, regardless of your feelings about whether someone's, you know, because they, they, before when I was diagnosed, they said it was level one, two, and three. And now like it's a lot of stuff that I'm reading two. is saying that that's inappropriate. And no, that's, I'm sorry. Hold it's, on, let me it's finish. It's still correct though. Okay. I just have to fit that in. Level one, two, so and three is still my perspective correct. on what an autistic person was was like. My cousin was is autistic. I'm like he's fucking autistic. Okay, that's what auti- that's what autism is. My uncle is I I didn't really know he was autistic, but like he's autistic for sure. Absolutely. But he's never been officially diagnosed as autistic. But he's like like Rain Man without the ability to take you know I couldn't take him to Vegas and gamble. Right. But um. You know, like my cousin, like my cousin's nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, he has a lot of different challenges. He's you know he cannot take care of himself. Right. My uncle was was to his credit, like you know he is a you know a pretty intelligent person, but he was never allowed to. Uh, thrive. So I, I now he's in his 70s. So who knows what he would have been able to accomplish or what he would have been able to do if he had the right guidance when and he was younger. And actual received support instead right. of what he was done, which was just like, so oh. So like my cousin had, has all the support and everything like that, but there's no helping the fact that he needs help. Right. The, the fact of the matter is he needs to, he needs someone to care for him. Right. You know, he can't drive a car. He, he he can't get a job. He is, you know, he's just has, his issues are too severe for him to be able to lead what we would call a, you know, quote unquote, you know, reasonably normal life. Right. Right. Yep. Which I think that regardless of if you're autistic or not, you can, you can lead, you know, uh, most of us can, you know, especially people listening can lead a, a normal, what we would say, again, quote unquote, normal life. 
but like my uncle i think i don't know if he would have le- could have led a like could he actually take care of himself it's i think it's he probably still would need some assistance but like he probably could have worked or something because he's 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 verbal he's intelligent he's just he's he was raised to basically the way he was raised was um you know when he was uh diagnosed with whatever he's been diagnosed with they specifically said that he was mentally retarded they did yes and they and i've it. seen the di- i've seen the paperwork he came up to me one time and it was like heartbreaking because my dad had left out this oh, note from the doctor no and he comes up to me and he goes blake am i retarded oh. and i was like i was like no bob um i was like it was like besides no one says that anymore <laughs> right but back then but that but that's but th- that's literally like what my perspective right. and i feel bad saying it but it's true right is that that's what i thought autism was was i thought it was like my my cousin who couldn't talk right and it is that but it's also me right it is also you and you know that's why it's a spectrum so there's it's so wide, and I think that's why people are like, "Am I really autistic? Am I not autistic? Am I pretending to be autistic?" It's like you probably are autistic, right. um, but you're struggling because it is such a there's such a wide gap between um, individual experiences in this way. Yep, and it makes it very difficult because you can't just pinpoint it, and it's not it's not like. Um, you know, everyone in Star Trek that wears a red shirt is going to die in an episode, right? <laughs> That's like an old, right, an old thing, right? It's so not it's like defined. if you look down and you're wearing a red shirt, you're like, I'm going to die, right? The difference is in real life, we're all wearing different colored shirts. Yep. And some of us are going to die. <laughs> and everyone, and then there's the nature versus nurture, which you mentioned before, like how you are raised, what your childhood beliefs are. Um, what I'm talking specifically is about there are. They've done studies that show that if your parents tell you, oh, you're autistic, like you'll never amount to anything, like you you have limitations, you you can't do this, you'll believe that you can't right? and you'll be able to do less. The parents that were like, yes, you have autism, yes, you're struggling in these areas, but you can, we can work with it. Like you will be who you are and let's figure out tools that work for you. Like they have... Those studies have proven that those children, those adults, those teenagers, they're more successful because they believe that they can access more resources. They're still autistic, but they have more capacity. They have they have more, you know, tools to use. You know, uh, autism. Hold on. I was going to say something. Um, If you take the, the, the brightest person, right, like someone that's very intelligent. Right. And you don't give them the, you know, they never read a book. Like their brain is so, you know, elastic and capable of becoming this thing. Right. That could be great. That, But if they're deprived of, you know, it's like if your brain is deprived of oxygen, um, if you don't get nutrients, if you if your brain doesn't get information. Stimulation. Stimulation the brain. input. Yeah. You right. know, like Johnny Five from... Um, uh, I almost said small wonder. That is not Johnny Five. <laughs> um, from uh, Short, Circuit. Short Circuit. Oh my God, look at you pulling the movies out. I am born in the 80s, you know. Um, and, you know, it's like input, need input. Like the more information that you get, you know, the, the, the better you're going to be. And then the intelligence part of that, obviously, is disseminating the information and being able to figure out what's 
good information and what's bad information. That's the hardest part. And that's the problem when you see someone that you think might be smart, you know, like your friends online or whatever, and they get, but they, and they're getting tons of information, but a lot of it's bad information. And they're not able to make that determination. I think that's a big part of it. But I'm going off in a different direction. I mean, there. you're making a valid point, yes. And I just want to... Sorry, and now you can go ahead and... Okay, well, I have two things. So okay. one, um, the brain is... So at one time, scientists believed that there was no relationship between the developing brain and the developing body. Did you know that? They believed there was no relationship between the developing brain and then developing body. We've come so far. Well, think of it like when we were watching all those documentaries about um, Egypt. Right. And how the ancient Egyptians, they actually believed the brain didn't have as much. That's not the, like where, where your soul lives. They believed that you're, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, if I remember correctly. The soul lives in the living heart. Living the heart. And that's absolutely And that was true. the most important organ. It's true today. But, but, you're, but you live your life through your eyes. Well. Which is where your brain is. But your brain is just a dashboard. That's the misunderstanding is that we have our mind. We think our mind is actually in charge. Our mind is not. Our mind is an order taker. It's a dashboard. It's based on input. It It's it's actually one of the most. It's actually one of the least intelligent parts of the human body is the mind. The brain is a computer. It does what it's told. So the brain is dependent on the body to provide stimulation necessary for growth as much as the body is dependent on the brain to send out the neurotransmitters that signal the muscles to move. You waiting for me to say something? No, I'm okay. just telling you. Um, it Researchers found that children who don't play as much or are rarely touched at, during childhood, like hugged and, you know, physical confirmation... They develop brains that are 20 to 30% smaller than normal. Hmm. That's huge. I wonder where you have to touch someone for their penis to get bigger. Oh, my goodness. I knew it was going to go there. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> so that shows what a sad display and what a lack of stimulation can do to developing brains. And they, they've illustrated it time and time again. So children that have stunted brain growth often because they were deprived of their sensory world. And if you remember in the 1940s when I, I do can't remember, remember I remember it well when I can't remember the name of the, the doctor who first came out with autism. And I've heard this thrown around in, um, in the autistic community as well. It's like, oh, stop saying this. But I'm sorry, but there's neurological evidence that that supports this, that autism was originally connected to frozen mom, frozen mothers. Basically, the very cold mother. What is a frozen mother? A cold ass woman. Like, what does that mean? A woman who's cold. She she's she's shut down. She's not. Oh, affectionate. see, you have to remember. I take she's, things literally. I just imagined a woman like outside in a. Oh, I know, but that's what they called. They called it frozen mother, and it was it's depicting her personality, her lack of nurturing, it's lack of physical touch, lack of emotional support. She's frozen. She's well, just not. But the supporting. difference is that you're born autistic. You're not uh, raised autistic. Uh, well, hold on. Oh, this is going to get heated. <laughs> We're born autistic now. Yes, you are born autistic. But remember that this is a developing thing. Like, you have to go back to where the data is. And the number of autistic people 100 years ago was very minimal. And the number of autistic people now. So why is this a global epidemic? Like, where everyone is experiencing this in their families now something because it wasn't talked about it's just like no it wasn't no but think about it like a great i think a great example would be 
like when I was growing up, not there weren't a lot of gay people. There sure are a lot of gay people now, but it's like, no, there were tons of gay people back then. I mean, even all the way back into Shakespeare's time. I mean, there's always been. But but remember, like you said, the brain is plastic. And so the brain responds to environmental changes over time. And autism is one of those things. And I'm not saying it's because of Frozen Mother. I'm not saying it's because of this or that. I don't know. I'm wait- Research is continually answering that question for us. But research continues to come out and say, hey, this has impacted the developing brain. And this has impacted the developing brain. And this has impacted the developing brain. And all of those things start to merge generationally. We have generations now where we don't have a single friend with a kid that isn't, maybe one, maybe we might have one family friend. One friend, sorry. We have, we are friends with one family only one that I know of that does not have an autistic kid. Every other one of our friends who have gone on to have kids. That's right. Welcome to the Cool Kids Club. Have at least one autistic child. Like, you, that, that data is screaming that every generation autism is getting. That's right. In this more. household, the autism, the autism, the autistic people out, outnumber the, uh, the neurotypicals. Two to one. Well, I'm not neurotypical, but I'm not autistic. Three, four to one if you count our penises. Oh, okay. Um, I just want to go back to one point really quickly. So in the DSM-5, the autism spectrum disorder, this is not often talked about, but to underline your point about your previous references to autism being your uncle and your brother with severe... No, not my brother, my cousin. Sorry, your cousin. Your cousin. Big jump. (laughs) sorry brother (laughs) i didn't mean you i meant your cousin um it's it's noted here that with your diagnosis it needs to be they always have to specify if your autistic diagnosis comes with or without accompanying intellectual impairment because that's very common or with or without accompanying language impairment because that's the full that's the the realm of autism includes they have to they have to specify with or without those two things because intellectual impairment to your earlier point very commonly um, associated with autism is and language impairment as well and so you said your cousin was nonverbal I mean Declan was nonverbal for a long time yeah but my cousin's like 30 and he's nonverbal still no agreed Declan was able to we were able to give him support and overcome it but Declan is he does not have accompanying intellectual impairment. He did have delayed language impairment. It it wasn't right. I mean a great you know the the side by side of seeing so we went to, I don't remember if we talked about this but we went to North Carolina to visit my sister, my niece and my great niece, grandniece, I forget which one. But I wouldn't know. Yeah. I think it's grandniece. Um and uh so my my grandniece is is 3, Declan's 4. And I mean, I don't feel like I'm exaggerating. Like I'm going to give her a British accent just because it'll be funny. But it, it's it, like she I was driving um, with Declan and uh, to, you know, to get up there. And my, you know, I, my niece called me and she's like, oh, you know, how far are you? And uh, I'm like, you know, we're however many miles away. And then she's like, say hi to your Uncle Blake. And I hear, hello, Uncle Blake. It's me, Lorelai. She was very articulate. Yeah, and that she's a neurotypically and she developing doesn't have a British child. accent, but it just seems like she should have one because she's so proper. She was really proper, and she was very complete in her thoughts. And I, you know, and she, she's also very vocal. Like, did you notice how many times she was just kind of growling or like really? She was exploring? growling, and then she was. 
I mean, one thing that I noticed as well is that, you know, she was, they, they were like, oh, let's listen to the song. And so she was singing along to the song. Declan doesn't do any of that. He, he, he sings like songs to himself um, and like children's songs that he's heard in daycare and so forth. Yep, but, but when I listen to, like, if I listen to music, it's not like he's rapping along to the songs I'm listening to. Well, it goes to. too fast, but he does, he does sing along to some Taylor Swift with me. Oh, great. But they listen to, and and I don't have a, I mean, I meant to come home and listen to more of it because they listen to like the, the 70s rock, like soft rock, I think. And well, we were listening to like the Beatles and some other stuff like that. You know, and so that's lyrically easy to follow along with. And that, to their credit, you know, they've helped her develop her language skills be, through singing, which is a very easy way. And I talked to his speech therapist about it the next day. And she goes, yeah, if you can put some of those songs on. And so I put his nursery rhymes on. Because he can sing to those, and he does like singing. But he's like, oh, I'm tired of these songs, Mom. So he hasn't found the genre of music that he really likes, but she is a neurotypically developing child. I mean, she's right where she's supposed to be at age three. Well, that was what I was saying. So, like, the side-by-side is, like, if you just just like looking at, you know, so many people when, when he was diagnosed were dismissive. Including you. Um. I just, it's just I, fair to say. I was just hoping he wasn't going to be like me. Oh, well, you've never said those words before. And that makes me feel really different about your response because I was very hurt when you didn't acknowledge. I wouldn't want him to have to go through the same struggles that I went through in his life. Yeah, I get that. And so that's why I was just like, you know, it was more of a please let it not be true type of thing. And you can't help but feel guilty because you're the parent that probably passed on that the genes right but that's not to say you know i don't feel i don't feel bad for him i feel like he's very smart and you know he'll because he because we identified it early enough and more specifically you and you know the doctors and so forth um, identified it early enough that he's able to get the support he needs. So he's got speech therapies and um, occupational therapy. You know, he's he's able to get assistance in ways that if it was like me raising him by myself, like if you were for some reason weren't around and I didn't know to even think to, you know, approach the subject at such a young age. Right. That he would still be speech delayed. But the things I was saying earlier is like, you know, like my brother and some other people like my mom and so forth and other, you know, whatever friends, they're like, oh, he seems so normal. And again, when people say that, I'm like, what does that mean? But, it, you know, like he seems like he's, I guess, I think what they're saying is like, oh, he's pro- he seems like he's progressing at, an, at, a, at, a, at the average rate. Like, you know, you wouldn't suspect that he was autistic. But then again, you put him next to my my niece and you're like, whoa, what a difference. I mean, his EMT, his surgical EMT said this to me the other day, well, the other day, like a month ago, um, because he went in for his follow-up, you know, with his, he had his adenoids out and his second set of tubes, and and she really, really fixed his health um, by help with those surgeries, but she looked at him, and she was, she didn't like that he was kind of being kind of fidgety, and so she asked him to stop, so stop interrupting her so that she could get out her spiel and move on to the next client, and he listened to her didn't get upset and then just stood by me and waited for her to talk. And she stopped and she goes, autistic kids normally can't do that. Like they can't respond to me in the moment. Um, she goes, he's autistic. And I was like, actually he's diagnosed as a level three. 
Like he's level three autistic. And she goes, yeah, but how are you doing? Like, what are you doing? A big, no, it's, I don't think it's anything that we're doing. I think a big part of that is that he is masking in that moment. I think he's definitely masking in that moment, but we've also given him a lot of new nutritional, like we're helping, as I've said before, if you build capacity for certain things, like we've given him a lot of nutritional support. We understand how to help him. You know, we'd spend a lot of time on emotional, functional communication. We spend time on these things. We, we know to put the support level three, by the way. So page 52 of the DSM five does still include levels. So okay. I know people want to fight about this and they want to do it for social reasons and how they feel emotionally. But, you know, diagnostically, level one says requiring support and there's paragraphs to explain social communication and restricted repetitive behaviors. Level two is requiring substantial support and level three is requiring very substantial support. And when he was diagnosed, he Still was... Still kind of vague though, but... Well, it, no, the, the... I know it goes into more It goes depth. into more... It goes into more depth. Um, depth in the in the category. But those categories are still diagnostically correct. I don't, I don't necessarily agree that, you know, I think, I think what it is is a lot of people, um, maybe some of our listeners um, could, could be a part of this group too. And, and I, I go back and forth on it like, you know, where it's like people are very sensitive to their autism, right? Agreed. As an identity, Right. And so when you when you try to say like, oh, there's levels of it, like I think that people get offended. Sure. Um, but like for me, you know, whatever level I am, you know, I am, quote unquote, it's it's like there I, I can't deny the fact that there are some people that have a much harder time with autism than I do. And probably some people that have an easier time with it than I do. Right. And so that's why it gets, to me, it's just a little confusing when it's, you know, we have this label of autism and then you say like, oh, there's these three levels or whatever it ends up being in the future. Well, but it's also because you're hearing it through a black and white lens, right? Because that's part of autism. It's part of a lot of neurodivergence is there's this black and white there's this sharp line between what changes between level one and two or what, or are you level one all day long? You know, like are, there's, there's, it's, it, these are gray. These are distinctions for diagnostic criteria, but how they are applied in your daily life are not black and white. And that's the problem is that you're actually being asked. You have to accept that you're living in the gray, which is like the most difficult thing I could say to you or any uh, anyone in my autistic family or friends is like you have to or my clients is like you have to kind of live in the gray here because this isn't about a permanency it's about capacity like at any given moment you might function higher you might have capacity to process emotions and that social interaction but 2 days later you don't have capacity in that same thing. And it doesn't change your definition. It doesn't change your level. You know, there's, so you're living in the gray. You're living in a flexible space that isn't defined by a boundary. Like it's just more about how do they classify things in terms of, you know, therapeutic and medical and community support. But it's so often translated down at the individual level and I think that's where everything gets all muddied and offended but you have to remember and this is true for every single person on the planet autistic or not we all have triggers 
We have emotional, unresolved moments from our past that need to be healed. And how we feel those triggers and how we process those triggers is going to be specific based on who you are as an individual. But if you're being triggered and you're feeling offended by something, the best advice I have as an emotional healer is to take a step back for a moment and recognize that you're feeling triggered. I'm feeling offended. And before you jump to defend yourself, which is what we do to protect, take a moment when you're feeling safe and when you feel, you know, like you're alone and can process and go, why am I feeling so triggered? What is it about that that bothers me because more than likely the reason why you're triggered and feeling offended is because you have an internal belief about something that you feel like you need to defend. And it's, it's more of a representation of your trigger, which every single one of us have, and you cannot take your baggage with you. We cannot take our traumas with us. Like we need to process those. They're, they're more difficult for, um, for most people. Like there's not an easy thing to do. So something that Ricky Gervais talks about mm-hmm. is, it, and and I feel like it relates to what you're talking about in a, in a, in a way, is you know he's talking about how a joke can't inherently be offensive, but you can be offended by a joke. A- Amen. I agree. So if someone was to say, "Oh, that joke's offensive," it's like, well, no, think about what you just said. You're offended, but that doesn't mean the joke's offensive. Agreed. It doesn't mean that what I, you know, and, and it doesn't necessarily, because <laughs> I think there are some things that are inherently offensive, like in, in life. Right. But as far as like humor, I think that that part of it relates in that, in, in it's because it's, it's, you're talking about triggers and how someone might be triggered by someone talking, you know, maybe someone makes a joke about someone that's in a wheelchair or something. You know what I mean? And you're in a wheelchair and maybe, but maybe you're in a wheelchair and you have a great sense of humor about being in a wheelchair. And so you find the joke really funny and someone else, uh, isn't in a wheelchair that they have a, a, a friend right. that that's in a wheelchair and on their behalf, they're like offended by it. It's all so you know perception I mean? based. It's like based on your beliefs, we really have to examine what our beliefs are and the concept of limiting beliefs, because I, I just want to put this out there and I know it's going to be unpopular and I just have to be honest because we've been told that there are things that are incurable and autism being one of them ADHD being one of them we've been told that you're born with these things Tread and, lightly and they can I'm just gonna tell you we've been told these things are incurable we've been told these things you're you're and I believe that they are you are born with them I don't believe they were we were always born with them in prior generations but we also have to remember that we live with a neuroplastic brain that is always capable of change. So I don't know if we're here yet, but I want to just put a little rock in the door here and urge you to keep your mind open because science is continually expanding and growing on what we know. And just like they told your uncle that he was not capable of living a life what past the age of 20 or being... No, they said he was going to die before he turned... 13. Okay, so he's in his 70s now. What, and this this book even said at one point, we didn't think that the body and the brain were developmentally connected. We didn't think that the skull, the bo- the, bo- the bones in the skull could move. We have said things about our medical states for centuries that we continue to disprove. One of the limiting beliefs that I hear the most is that, 
you're defined and 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 compressed by autism but yet we have these we have these brains that are continually growing and expanding so it is possible that one day science and neurology and neuroscience comes together and they start to figure out what is really at the core of autism and how to lessen or resolve some of these challenges. I'm not saying we're there today, but to permanently believe that it's 100% fixed and that you are limited by it for life, I just, I struggle with that thought because it defies what we know about the brain so far. And we, and I, I would say we, we don't even know much about it. Did you know... When I'm I would much rather they cure small penis syndrome than autism. <laughs> okay. Not to say I have a small penis. Yeah, but I was like that. To, okay. Medium penis syndrome. Did you know? So here's just one example, and I'm going to get a little technical. But when Einstein died, you know, they har- they kept his brain mm. because they're like, one day we're going to understand why Einstein was Einstein, and the I can't remember his metachlorian count was off the charts. Is what? It's a Star Wars joke. Oh, okay. Um, the scientist who kept his brain was very selective about who he, like which researchers and scientists he would splice his his brain and give it away for more research. And I have an entire book about it. Um, and it's fascinating because what the one thing that they noticed in Einstein's prefrontal cortex, right, which is the part of our brain where we use, that we store our information in the back of the brain, we use it in the front of the brain. What we noticed, the, what they noticed the most is that Einstein had an exceptionally larger count of glial cells. And they were like, well, that's funny because glial cells don't do anything. Because at the time, they didn't have any idea what glial cells did because they understood the brain to work in one fashion. But you're speaking in hypotheticals from I'm, like... I'm not. I'm telling you that now, fast forward to today, we know exactly, we know more about glial cells and we understand that they're actually the glue that makes the entire brain work. But when Einstein died, we looked at that as inconsequential. We didn't even understand how it worked. So all I'm saying is let's just put a little rock in the door that there may be a point in time down the road where we start to uncover more tools and resources where you don't have to feel so limited by things. I'm not making, I'm not saying anything specific. I'm just saying we have, we're constantly growing, we're constantly changing, and we're constantly learning. And that's all I'm saying. Let's be open-minded to things as they come down the future. Just rip her apart on the Facebook group, everyone. <laughs> Tear a new asshole. Go for it. I'm just speaking saying. of Facebook. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you don't sound autistic. <laughs> YDSA. Please join immediately. So we, we need we need hundreds and hundreds of people to join the Facebook group now, <laughs> so we can all rip Rochelle a okay. new one. I, I'm, you know what? I own, I'm confident. No, I see what you're saying. Like, as far as, look, I get it. Science is, is going to change and get better, but I, I don't think, you know, I think where you went astray there was when you said, you know, like you can't cure, you don't want to use, I wouldn't use the word cure. I'm using the words that have been put out there by other people. I'm just saying, and I didn't say cure. I said lessen the symptoms or no, help that part, I, that, but that's, but that's something that's people can do now. Like that getting assistance and things like that can help lessen symptoms or, uh, you know, alleviate some of the, the pressures that, you know, there's a lot of different therapies that can be helpful. But if you're talking about 
glial cells and you know like they're like oh they found that this there's this gene you can turn off or something and then all of a sudden you don't have autism anymore like that i don't buy um well but that's the exactly what i'm talking about be prepared that as we continue to grow that there may be discoveries you be prepared you better put on you better lube that butthole because you are about to get fucked up well you know there's something in the brain called the corpus callosum which is the highway in between the two hemispheres. And what they have found in research recently is that the corpus callosum, the neural, the highway between the two hemispheres, is 25% smaller in autistic brains than non-autistic brains. So what they are discovering is that autism is linked to a reduction in integration between the two hemispheres of the brain. And that is a is something that can be supported like that that's not a life sentence you can go in and go okay you have an underdeveloped corpus callosum there are therapies that can go in and increase and help the brain develop in that area and you do i mean exercises that cross midline for example when that means taking like your right arm and crossing over to your left that's an example of crossing midline that creates right left brain integration that autistic symptoms in autistic individuals so if i scratch my left nut with my right hand <laughs> i'm i'm crossing the colostomy what do you call it again <laughs> corpus callosum yeah okay Technically, yes. All right. I'm going to scratch my left testicle with my right hand and my right testicle with my left hand at the same time <laughs> while I chew bubble gum okay. on the toilet. I'm just saying these scientific neurological discoveries are being made. They are being researched with autistic individuals and non-autistic individuals to determine if there is impact inside the brain because those are things that we can do things about. When you have a right and left brain that is more integrated and has a stronger neural connection, do some of the symptoms go away in people who have been receiving these treatments? Yes, some of the symptoms do go away. Does that mean their autism goes away? I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are going to continue to be discoveries in this area. And if we're closed minded about it because we've been told that this is a life sentence and you're born with it and you're, you know, like if you're just those if you argue for your limitations, you're going to keep them. I'm just saying be open-minded. Look at him rolling his eyes at me. You're rolling my. You're rolling your eyes because you know I'm saying something true. No, I think that you are way off point. I just disagree. You're allowed to disagree. I'm just... Okay. I, hey, folks, this is real shit. Yeah, I know. I, I have been reading a lot from neuro neurologist and neuroscientist about this subject and for months now I've been timid to even share it with you this is probably the first day I've even mentioned it to you because there's sometimes comfort in your in in knowing like this is defined and this is how it is and it's overwhelming as it is so don't add one more thing to it but I can't chew stop on that folks from... again I can't wait to see how she gets obliterated the world is By all three people that will uh, respond. <laughs> the world is constantly changing. We'll never be okay. able to stop it from changing. You'll never be able to stop us from growing. We're always there are. I'm so not saying you can't grow and you can, but I. It's just when you talk about like getting rid of it. Like I didn't talk about getting rid of it. I talked about reducing symptoms. Yeah. Okay. Why didn't you just say that instead? I did. It doesn't sound like that to me. Well then maybe that's a trigger for you. 
All right. Having said that, I feel like that's a good place to stop because everyone get on Facebook now. Get her. <laughs> you know what? I'm brave. I own I own my thoughts. I own my feelings. I know it's controversial. I welcome your feedback. Um but I own it. I'm confident in what I'm saying because these are my personal on beliefs. The, on behalf of the audience, I'd like to offer you a Fit B. No. <laughs> I think that they would appreciate it. No. I reject that. How dare you? <laughs> from our from our our listeners who listen? No, 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 no. Nobody needs Fit Bs. Oh, yes, they do. Nobody needs Plenty them. of people need Fit Bs. Nobody needs those. So, all right. Um, no news minute or pop minute this week. I did have, uh, one thing that I was going to talk about, but I, the, I couldn't get into. So Kate sent me, uh, an email or a text about something. She was like, Oh, you might want to use this for news minute. Um, about this guy who was like nonverbal until he turned 18 or something like that. And now he's like a professor. Okay. Um, but the article, uh, it's like, it, there's a paywall. A what? A paywall. Okay. You know what that is? No. You know when you go in to read an article in like New York Times or whatever and like it'll let you read the first paragraph and then if you want to keep reading, you got to pay for it? I understand. It's a paywall. I I pictured a literal wall. Yes, I understand. Like on online. You're taking things black and white. I have a literal mind too. I get it. I I didn't know you were talking about something online. so I, I guess I didn't really even talk about it, but um, I, I just need more information. But I, I did think it was interesting from the like the three paragraphs I was able to read. But I, I I want more information before I can actually speak to it. Speak to it, yeah. Um, but there are success stories. Like there are six. There are English. There are stories like that emerging every day, where the brain was limited over here, and then now the brain is able to do this. That's all I'm saying. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah, but the guy's still autistic. Agreed. He's still autistic. I'm, I mean, I don't. I don't think removing challenges or barriers necessarily takes anything away. It just helps you navigate life a little bit easier. I'm not saying today. I'm saying in the future. Stop saying in the future. What in the future? We just don't. We need to be just keep a just keep a little rock open, little rock in the no, door. What does that even mean? Keep Means, a rock in the door. D- so otherwise you have a completely closed door to the possibility that in the future we discover more. How about put a wedge in the door? Because put a rock sounds weird. Okay, put a small rock-sized wedge in the door to keep a little bit of it open. I'm going to hit you with a rock. (laughs) (laughs) We have rocks, don't we? Don't you have gemstones around here somewhere? I do. Just don't use the amethyst. It's sharp. All right. Um, I think that's enough out of us for today. Uh... I'm going to play some new music here in a second. Okay. I'm Blake. I'm Rochelle. And we will be back. Cue the music. Uh, 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 uh.